politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots, to the one and only Conservative Review podcast. Your show host, Daniel Horowitz, back in the house for another exciting week of independent conservative talk here at Blaze Media. And we are chomping at the bit to get back here after this long weekend. God knows why we have Labor Day. I still can't understand that. Um, Imagine if we celebrated this time of year in September Constitution Day instead of this uh, meaningless Labor Day. Perhaps we'd have a society that would understand what's going on. Perhaps we would have a society that wouldn't allow what is going on. Which leads me to the question today. We're going to go through all of the viral news, no pun intended, that we missed over the last number of days, a long weekend. There's a ton of news validating every premise we have made about this virus from day one, demonstrating the psychosis of this mask lockdown insanity. And that is this. Where are the men? Where are the men? Why is everyone emasculated? And you could spell that E. M-A-S-K-U-L-A-T-E-D. Emasculated. We do as we're told. We put a diaper on our face because government told us to do it. I mean, really? Where are the men? It's almost like, kind of like these PCR tests where you have to blow up the virus, amplify it, 40 times, these 40 CT cycles, in order to even detect the existence of what was likely a former virus. It's almost like we need to amplify people's uh, male hormones by 40 CTs in order to detect a trace of manliness in this freaking society. We saw over the weekend the video I'm sure a lot of you have seen out of Spain where these police were grabbing a woman for not wearing a mask. And a bunch of men got together and grabbed her back. Done. We're not doing that. Why is it that in this country, the only violence, the only pushback we seem to have against the police are violent thug murderers, arsonists, nasty people, as opposed to good people pushing back against tyranny of government? Why is it that we only have a French Revolution, but not a great American Revolution? And the answer is because we have Labor Day instead of Constitution Day, where people don't understand what is and is not a fundamental right. What is and is not the role of government. So we have this virus going on and on in a form of a cold that's not a pandemic anymore. But once they have sucked people in habitually, psychologically, through fear and panic, based on a premise that this virus was really 30 to 50 times more deadly than it actually is, based on a premise that however deadly it is or isn't, these superstitious rain dance and sun dance and moon dances could somehow help to stop it, Now you can't get people out of it. 
one of the best analogies ever given on this was early on by my colleague Steve Dace when he compared this to our Afghanistan. How you get sucked in based on a certain premise, which was true in its right form, in its right context. And then it just grows legs and it becomes its own institution and there's no exit strategy out. It's like, well, there, there's, there's bad guys running around in Afghanistan. Well, unless and until you kill every human being in Afghanistan, there's going to be bad guys running around there. But is that something you even have to deal with? Do you even have to be there anymore? And what is the mission? How do you define it? What about the painful cost of that mission that doesn't need to be done? Speaking of which, by the way, just to veer off a little bit, just saw news that a U.S. service member was injured in Somalia. There was some sort of truck bomb, and three people were injured, including a U.S. service member. What in the world are we doing in Somalia? Really? I mean, what are we doing in Somalia? So, um, that's kind of the analogy here. There's cases. I found a case. So we have this obsessive psychosis to test and test and test with false positives, amplification of viruses that are no longer a problem. They've never been a problem. They're not transmissible. And then that in itself shuts people down. We have tyranny beyond belief in schools and college campuses, workplaces. It feeds on itself. See, one of the things that's going on in the schools now, I'm sure glad I pulled my kids out of the private school they're in because we just found out the high school is completely shut down now. Three kids tested positive. Are they in the hospital? No. They're all subclinical. Subclinical cases. Meaningless. And again, it could very very well be that if you would properly calibrate these machines, they would come up as negatives. There's nothing to them, no significance whatsoever. So what's happening now is we kept kids away from each other for six months. So we destroyed God's natural immunological ecosystem where kids are constantly designed to be with each other. Humanity is designed to be with each other. And what that does is you gradually pick up traces of pathogens in order to get immune to it. In French, we call that a vaccine. Okay? That's a good thing. What happens is if you arrest that process for a significant period of time, what you'll have is people no longer picking up those vaccines, those God-made vaccines. And then when they do get a pathogen then, it more strongly affects them. So even before we get to flu season, you have September which in most parts of the country, kind of the, you know, where I live, mid-Atlantic, not too cold, not too hot, midsection of the country, you get these days where it could be kind of cold in the morning, it gets hot in the afternoon, and when the weather swings back and forth in September, you usually get a cold from it. What the science behind that is, I couldn't exactly explain it to you, 
But I know from life experience, I almost every time the weather changes dramatically, whether it's after a week or two or three of that, I get a cold. Could I trace it to who got who gave it to me? Who is a murderer who gave me the cold? No. Sometimes I don't even know anyone who got it. I just get it. Respiratory viruses just come. So now all these kids in school are going to get colds again. Oh my gosh, there's a sore throat. There's a runny nose. And now you're going to blow it all into your mask and walk around with it for the rest of the day. Spread bacteria, spread germs. Your immune system is artificially damaged by the man-made plague of coronaphobia and psychosis. And now we're like, oh my God, you have, your kid has a sore throat. You better get tested for COVID. Well, now you have in a school at any given time, 50 people with a cold. Well, out of the 50, you have the cold. Five or so could easily test positive for the virus. Mind you, we don't care about the cold or the flu. But maybe you have the virus. So the symptom is not a problem. The symptom is a harbinger of having to test for something that you're asymptomatic for. The exact opposite of what we were supposed to be doing. Whether it's a false positive, whether it's a notional positive, or whether it's a real positive of something that is just subclinical by a mile, and who cares, they will test positive. And your school will be shut down. And any sibling will be shut down. Anyone in the class will be shut down. Any teacher will be shut down. And this is how we're going to live our life. Something that should scare us all, send chills down our spine. At cell.com, C-E-L-L.com, scientific journal, Fauci wrote an article recently. And he said, quote, living in greater harmony with nature will require changes in human behavior as well as other radical changes. These are his words that may take decades to achieve rebuilding the infrastructure of human existence. Folks, this should scare the hell out of you, out of everyone. Where is this coming from and where is this headed? It's coming from insanity and it's headed to a very bad place that is tyrannical that is pagan that destroys God's system that makes us more unhealthy not to mention the disruption to our lives but folks I want to play for you a clip of Fauci on January 27th when the virus was percolating we kind of knew it was around before this became political what did this man think about the virus take a listen But the one thing historically people need to realize that even if there is some asymptomatic transmission in all the history of respiratory borne viruses of any type, asymptomatic transmission has never been the driver of outbreaks. The driver of outbreaks is always a symptomatic person. Even if there's a rare asymptomatic person that might transmit, an epidemic is not driven by asymptomatic carriers. Guys, notice, notice. He intuitively said what we now know is true even more. So you you can't say, well, maybe things changed. Maybe this virus was novel. Everything about this virus, of course, is different from any virus. You know, it's funny. My wife has um, 
this joint pain in her in her leg. And I said, hey, you got the virus, baby. Like, th- that's it. You're done. I said, I guarantee you, you Google COVID-19 or whatever with any ailment known to men, and they'll tether it to that. Because this virus is capable of doing everything. But once upon a time, Fauci admitted that even if you could find asymptomatic transmission, it it is not going to be the significant driver behind it. We now have three studies showing that there is no single legitimate study that studied the actual transmission that could prove asymptomatic spread to a large degree. Often not at all. He was right back then. Like I told you, if you want to get the truth of the matter, study the literature, study the statements by people like Fauci, before it became political, when it was viewed and understood as an opportunity to remake humanity, as they're now saying. The point being, this will never end until we grab back that power. It's not an election. It's not any one office holder. It played out dramatically in that street. In Spain, you have to grab back that power. You have to say no. No, we are just not doing this anymore. No mas, I'm sorry. That's the only way out of this. And that's the thing with the asymptomatic. There's no evidence any of this is a problem. We are literally upending humanity and civilization for premises that have not only not been proven, but as time goes on, the opposite appears to be true. Here's the real scary thing, I think, for all of us. Once they gave this the name COVID-19... No matter what happens with this particular pathogen, they'll always scare people with it. So, like, there's one thing if this goes the way of SARS-1, just kind of burns out. Now, we already said even if it does, they're going to make the flu the new baseline. And that is true. But what I'm saying is, on all likelihood, this is not going away in the sense of that it could be around as the fifth coronavirus cold. It's already gone away as an epidemic. It's a cold now. It is literally a cold. It was only an epidemic for a few weeks in March and April in certain parts of the country. Other, most parts of the country never even got that. It was unique to the New York area, a couple other areas in the, in the Northeast, a couple isolated areas elsewhere. That's it. Otherwise, for most people, it pretty much only killed those that were going to die within a few months, and there is no proven method that we have ascertained so far that could have prevented that. But going forward, you're going to continue to have cases. See, this is where this whole immunity is a joke. You know how they say, oh, there's no immunity. The um, antibodies wane. Well, it turns out Iceland has a study out that shows 91.1% of people 
that were infected developed antibodies. And that four months later, they did not wane. And that really the number is likely higher because because the false positive rate. In other words, the the number of people, the percentage of people who are actually in reality infected for real that get antibodies is really close to 100%. The ones that you're not seeing is, A, remember the 3% false positive rate. So that, that's going to get you higher. A good number of those positives aren't really positives. So they don't have antibodies because guess what? They didn't have the virus. Or they had a very notional case of it. Very like just, you know, it, it wasn't enough to infect anyone else. It wasn't enough to get them sick. So you could have a case-demic None of us disagree that a case-demic you can get again. How many times have you gotten the flu in a given year, much less your li- uh, lifetime? How many times have you gotten a cold? You're not immune to things that you don't need to be immune to, right? Even though there are some colds, really most colds, but to varying degrees, some colds that do kill people in nursing homes that are at the end of their lives. Not just flus, but even colds. We've talked about this before with one of the coronaviruses, HCOV-C43, is proven to kill people, and we never worried about it. That's life. That's not your fault. That's not you spread it, he spread it. That is the angel of death's tool for that individual at that given time. It's the epidemic level. I mean, the people, again, you know, my uncle had it. My uncle lived in the New York area at that time in late March. He got a very bad case. He was hospitalized. He had trouble breathing. That's a red line. That's something that's a lot worse than a flu. Because severe pneumonia. Now, he wasn't in ICU and he got better, thankfully. But a guy like that, there is no evidence he will be prone to reinfection. The only people that could get reinfection are like you can get the cold version of it. But here's the deal. If you're one of those people that didn't produce antibodies, that's actually a good thing. You didn't produce it because guess what? Guess what? Your body didn't need to. Your T cell or inherent humoral B cell immunity warded off the symptoms without the need to produce antibodies. So the fact that you got the virus once certainly is not going to make you worse off than you were before. In other words, your body knew how to deal with it the first time, certainly the second time around. In other words, it's not like, hey, a guy that warded off with T-cells, a year later he can get like a really bad case of it. No. But with this whole PCR testing thing, you might be able to find people you could swab and you'll find some something going on there. But the notion of reinfection in the way that your average person views it and fears it is simply not true. But this is what we're up against. We are now chasing our tail because of a cold. And then everything we do makes it worse. Isolate people even more so that now, now colds are going to be worse and more often because you don't have immunity to them, which creates even more panic, which shuts down people's lives, locks them home, they atrophy if they're older. If they're younger, they get depressed, the suicides. I don't know if you saw, but out of England, they have a report in the UK Daily Telegraph, 
Heart attack deaths are up 50% during the lockdown. High blood pressure deaths rose one-third, diabetes one-fourth among people under 65. Lockdowns kill. But anyway, this is a study that's out at Medrick's IV. Immunological characteristics govern the changing severity of COVID-19 during the transition to endemicity. As prospects for eradicating COVID-2 dwindle, we are faced with the question of how the severity of COVID-2 disease may change in the years ahead. Will COVID-2 continue to be a pathogenic scrooge that, like smallpox or measles, can be tamed only by ongoing vaccination, or will it join the ranks of mild endemic human coronaviruses, a.k.a. colds? Our analysis of immunological and epidemiological data on HCOVs shows that infection-blocking immunity wanes rapidly, but disease-reducing immunity is long-lived. You get that? In other words, infection that you have some pathogen in you that if you test it and amplify it 40 times, you'll find it, but you'll never know about it. Yeah, you, that, that might wane your ability to not have that, but the, the point is the disease. That's what we don't want. We estimate that the relevant parameters incorporate them into a new epidemiological model framework which separates these different components of immunity. Our model... Um, basically, it has both the current severity of COVID-2, it factors that in, and the relatively benign nature of HCOVs, suggesting that once the endemic phase is reached, COVID-2 may be more may, may be no more virulent than the common cold. The benign outcome at the endemic phase is contingent on the virus causing primary infections in children. We predict a very different outcome were a COVID-like MERS to become endemic. Okay, that was more serious. These results force us to reevaluate control measures that rely on identifying and isolating symptomatic infections and reconsider ideas regarding herd immunity and the use of immune individuals as shields to protect vulnerable groups. In other words, the point is, what does it matter to discover a virus that is attenuated into a cold? There's over 100 rhinoviruses. Do we ever try to identify them? And mind you, with common colds, it's not like the death rate is zero. It's not like, you know, people at the end of their life can't die of it, and they do. This is the point. We are now at a stage that what we are doing, if we're going to do it for this, there is, it's indefensible not to do it for other things which is why I guess they are going to do it indeed for other things. But this is where we are. And then also, I wanted to point out, here's another trick. Again, you have to go to the UK media to find this. The UK Times. Going to school does not increase risk of young children catching coronavirus. And they basically did a test a study and they found... Um, so th there's an old trick you have in a, a certain gathering, whether it's a school, a college, uh, uh, a wedding, uh, whatever, some sort of get-together, the Sturgis motorcycle rally, where they'll, they'll bean count how many people they, they feel got it, and automatically they'll speak as if it was the event, the gathering that triggered it. 
But as we all know, you take any population of a thousand kids at any given time until this is over with, especially at this point when it's likely more pervasive than ever because it's attenuated more than ever. Again, they work in tandem. When it was serious at the beginning, it was rare. As it spread, it became much more, much weaker, which is really um, a blessing of God. That if you want to study microevolutionary theory, it um, not macro but micro, it works in tandem with God's divine providence and His mercy. He's not going to have something that is, you know, extremely deadly that is is that pervasive. So kids will always have it, like anyone else. And, when, and again, when I say have it, I'm using air quotes. It, it's either a false positive, a notional positive, a real positive, but just totally subclinical. Um, they're going to have it. So when you have a school, it's like, we found three cases in, 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 you know, in 12th grade. Well, at this time, if they would be at home, how many in any given week would have it? Okay, if you would test them. It's just because now that you're back in school and they have all these draconian rules, and, 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 and again, like I noted, part of what is happening is once you put them back together, they are going to have colds this time of year, possibly more than usual, because they're not used to being around each other, and that's going to trigger them to get tested, whereas otherwise they wouldn't care to get tested You know, when they were at home the last number of months. And guess what that does? that makes you discover more cases that were always there. Frankly, a lot of them, they could have been a while ago. In other words, a lot of times, if you have a sore throat, you could legitimately have a cold, let's say a rhinovirus, not a coronavirus, not SARS-CoV-2. But what's going to happen, typically, is that you could have someone who is simultaneously co-infected with SARS-CoV-2 asymptomatically. Meaning, ironically, the symptoms might come from a pathogen that's not the thing you're worried about. (laughs) So it's the thing you're not worried about that might be more evidently symptomatic than the thing you are. Or it could be you had the virus a while ago, and it's one of those stupid PCR tests that just keep picking it up for weeks, if not months on end. So that's what what we're doing to, to ourselves here. Criminalizing people's status, their lives. And then, of course, then, of course, we have the college campuses. The college campuses, which are just sickening, utterly sickening. Okay? Truly sickening. My buddy, Dr. Andy Boston, we had him on the show a couple times. He wrote some articles for us. He is a cardiovascular um, epidemiological um, epidemiology researcher. He's a physician at Brown University in Rhode Island. He put together a spreadsheet of 17 state university systems to tally the number of reported cases. A lot of them have like a thousand in their university systems. U of Alabama, U of Georgia, U of Kentucky, Ohio State University, Illinois State, University of Wisconsin, University of Minnesota, University of Miami, Penn State, Kansas State, U of Kansas. And he tallied over 11,000 cases. 
out of those cases, there are zero hospitalizations. Have you heard in the in the news people dying on college campus? Believe me, if you had a case, you'd hear about it. Now, you might be able to Google and find like, um, we were able to trace back some serious cases to, to colleges. That's BS. That's not the same as their dashboard. That means how many students are currently there, you know, hospitalized, and that is zero. The whole thing of, oh, I traced it back, that it's nonsense. They don't know. So think about it. Think about how illogical this is. Typically, we go and test for something that if you're positive, it's a harbinger for really bad news. A lot of people get very sick from it. Here, we're testing for something that has zero risk. Yet, the, the colleges, the, the county public health officials, the state public health officials, the university faculty leadership, they are treating this as Armageddon. See, really, this is awesome news. This is amazing news. This is God's vaccine. They're taking a vaccine and rejecting it. They're rejecting God's vaccine. That's what it is. See, this is actually better than no cases. See, if you had no cases, I'll tell you, well, you know, it doesn't prove anything because... At any point, you could get the cases, and maybe it's going to be bad, and maybe you're going to get very sick, and some some are going to be hospitalized, some will die, right? But now that you have 11,000 cases among these 17 university systems, and Andy's going to be updating his spreadsheet throughout the day and the week, and you find that they're all subclinical, now that's actually better than having no cases, because that means... A, you don't have to worry about it. It demonstrates what we've always known. It's not a problem to them, to people, you know, 20 years old. But B, it actually immunizes the population. Just the opposite. Had we been doing this since March, had we not closed the college campuses and the schools, you would have achieved herd immunity much quicker. And you would protect the immunocompromised. That's what's going on in Sweden. Do you know in Sweden, there has not been a single day where more than 11 people died in the entire country in almost two months. Many days, they have zero, one, two deaths, barely any cases. They burnt it out. With no national psychosis, breakup of marriage, drug overdoses, suicides, extra heart and stroke deaths, missed cancer diagnoses, destroyed economy. But not only are these university directors and health departments not taking this as a a good omen, in the University of Arizona, they actually hired a private security company to, quote, patrol and ensure compliance of health, health and safety directives on campus. They're essentially turning their campuses into prisons. Um, In Ohio, and again, this is under a Republican governor. They went and signed an order creating these quarantine homes. So not only if you're symptomatic, but if you're asymptomatic, or even if you didn't test. 
But we believe that you are came into contact with someone. You are literally thrown in the dungeon. It's like people come in a hazmat suit, like in a movie, and drag you into it there. It's not even like you could say, look, okay, I'll leave. I'll leave. I'll leave the college. I'll go home and quarantine with my parents. No. You are thrown in, in, in a de facto prison, and they could deny parents visitation rights for something that is less than what they would typically get this season, that is actually a blessing that is creating herd immunity with zero risk. College campuses are like China now. Where are the men standing up to that? And the answer is they've all become emasculated with their stupid masks. See, folks, here's the deal. You can't escape from jail. I mean, if you're sending your kids, especially to a public university system, it's crazy. You are sending them to China because they will be locked down. They will be thrown into this uh, quarantine jail. Remember, Ohio State University is conducting mandatory random testing of 8,000 students each week. It's part of their surveillance program. So it's not like, okay, we test you out of the gate, You know, right when you enter, if you have it, then you can't enter. If you don't, then here you are and you're good to go. No. You could be locked down in there, not allowed out. doesn't matter. Every week, they're going to have random sampling. And you have to participate in it. Again, what percentage are false positive? Massive percentage. If in any given place, you have 3 to 6% positivity rate and 3% are false positive, that's like a candidate pulling 4% in the polls with a 3% margin of error. The majority of it could be bogus. And what's said is the University of Arizona is doing this and it's lost on them. They actually had like an 80%, 85% rate. 83% false positive. They had 13 positives among their athletics department in U, U, U of Arizona. 11 of the 13 upon retesting turned out to be false. This is what we're doing. The irony is lost on them. They themselves see how the the tests are bogus and yet they're using that as as a baseline for which to lock people up. According to Dr. Richard Carmona, the College of Public Health at University of Arizona, They found cases at sorority houses. They were able to identify very early before anybody was symptomatic that there were sick people in the dorm. Asymptomatic cases. Again, when there is no proof that they even spread, that if they did, that it's a problem to anyone that age. Remember, they're all locked down together anyway. They're all in their young 20s or late teens. This psychosis is going to continue until men stand up and say, no mas, no mas, no mask. We will not be emasculated. It's that simple. There's no nuance here. Well, maybe when it comes to this metric, the problem is the the, the more the virus attenuates, the more it turns out they're ramping up the tyranny. 
So what that does is it creates psychologically a new baseline and threshold of panic and fear that we're now not at the flu level, we're at the cold level. That's how sick this is. And by the way, I just wanted to mention, I might get to this later this week. There's two new analyses out on this to use. One's from Germany. Whatever happened to, to colds? You see, coronavirus, we're told, you know, SARS-CoV-2 is kind of new. It's, it's a novel. So we don't know what, what levels would be at any given time. So it's always this cat and mouse game of trying to prove what is and isn't effective. But we do have a pretty long track record and a baseline of cold and flu-like symptoms on a given time. Just the cold and the flu. So let me ask you a question. If emasculated mask wearing had any modicum of effectiveness towards combating SARS-CoV-2, well, at the same time, it would reduce flu and cold, right? At least to a certain extent. I mean, that, that should be obvious. If anything, if anything, it's easier for a mask to block that because generally speaking, those are wetter coughs where it's kind of you know more visible aerosols, whereas um, the dry cough that's common with this virus will tend to produce more atomized virons, which can more easily escape a mask. So there's certainly, to my knowledge, I mean, nobody around who would say that there's somehow some sort of logical reason it would work for SARS-CoV-2, but not work for the cold and the flu. If you analyze, and we're going to get into this later this week, if you look at what's called ILI, influenza-like illness symptoms, you look at flu and pneumonia, you look at the baseline of the last six months, there is no evidence based on a 100-year trajectory. We have data dating back to 1900 on this, by the way, of any reduction compared to recent years. What an utter joke. See, this is the cruel and sick irony. We're going to have problems in the schools because kids are going to be getting colds. And colds are going to be a new problem. A, because we're now scared of the cold. B, that's going to be the catalyst to get people to test for something that they wouldn't even know or care about had they not have this bogus positive. But wait a minute. Why should kids be getting colds? Well, Daniel, well, you know, they're, they're now back together. But I don't understand. They're wearing masks. Well, Daniel, but, but, but still, I, I know they're wearing masks, but they're, but they're together. Well, if they're together, and they're wearing masks, and that's not going to help because they're together for the flu, then how the hell does it help for coronavirus? And how could that be justified to engage in that degree of child abuse against our children for something that is plain as day, it doesn't work? So that's another interesting rub to all this nonsense. All this utter, sick nonsense. Anyway, folks, I have a ton of more info here that we're going to have to wait for some other day just because I got I to do TV soon. Um, I got a couple TV radio hits today, but wanted to share with you um, before, before we end today one other story that brings an entire new dimension 
to this question. Again, when you talk about both the severity of what is going on and the accuracy of the count and the context of how unprecedented this truly is in terms of the virus. I mean, the response is certainly unprecedented, but the virus itself. So one of the things that the other side loves to do is love to compare this to the Spanish flu. Okay, and, and, and I've said before, even the Spanish flu itself, there's a lot we don't know about. Like, for example, they talk a lot about, oh, the second wave, a third wave. But the truth be told, if you actually study it, was there ever a second wave in an area that already had a wave, right? This is the old trick. You know, they'll say, oh, there's a second wave. Well, you know, yeah, I mean, Florida didn't have the New York wave, so it had the wave later. You know what I mean? Like, it moves on. The notion that you have a saturation level really hits an area, and then it hits it again, more than just a trickle of remaining cases, I don't know if that has ever happened then or now. But moreover, the, the bigger thing is Fauci's out there comparing this to the Spanish flu every day now. Every day is like, this is, this is as bad as the Spanish flu. Now, let me tell you something. Aside from the fact that obviously the death toll from the Spanish flu, if you would adjust for today's population, was 2.2 million. But more importantly, the median age was 28. Okay, 28. And it certainly did affect children and, and babies. Obviously, today, you look at the median age in most states, it's either at or above life expectancy. Folks, one of our friends from rationalground.com, part of our group of people, her name is Jennifer Cabrera. She, she has a, a website, Alchua Chronicle. Um, she's out in Gainesville, Florida. So she had a great observation from last Wednesday. She took last Wednesday's batch of reported deaths from Florida, and she found that the median age for that day's reported deaths in Florida was 93, okay? 93, meaning that half of the deaths were above 93, okay? There were 149 reported deaths. That means that about 75 of them were older than 93. Total of 64% of the deaths were over 85 years old. There's two points to be made about this. One about the context of the severity of this virus, and one about the actual accuracy of the death count. So let's start off with the, just the context. What we are doing in this crisis is we are ensuring that hundreds of thousands of young people will die young, lose decades upon decades of your, you know, life lost due to economic despair, suicide, substance abuse, as a result of our response to a virus that only kills in meaningful numbers above the age of life expectancy. So just remember... The panic, the social isolation, the destruction of life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. It's induced a crisis of suicide and clinical depression, which ironically is more evident in youngsters, right? Young people are suicidal over this, who are least likely to die from the virus. And again, as time goes on, 
there is zero evidence that any of these policies would have saved those older people. I said this before, that consider someone 93 years old. The majority of people that have died in their 80s and 90s, do you think they've been running around yucking it up with people? I mean, you tell me the the people you know in your life, but I could certainly tell you from what I see, almost every one of them is completely locked down. Many of them don't even go literally outdoors, which is not healthy, of course. Let me ask you a question. How do they how are they dying? See, in March, when we got hit, you could say, well, initially, people didn't realize, so it attacked the elderly people, and it was those elderly people who were, you know, going around, and they got it from someone, and then they died. So let's do lockdown. So we did lockdown. These people largely have locked themselves down for months and months and months. And still, the age of death has not gotten any younger. Let me ask you, how are these people dying? And the answer is God, okay? They're either not dying from the virus, it's really old age and not the virus, they just happen to test positive, or they got it. I don't know how they got it. Respiratory viruses have a way of getting you. You know, you know how many colds I try to avoid? I hate getting a cold because I use my voice so much. So I'm always careful. I take Zycam and I try to, you know, I'm a lot more careful to wear a coat in the winter than I used to be. Sometimes I know how I got a cold. Sometimes I have no idea. People who are alone and don't go places, generally speaking, don't get as many colds, certainly as those that have young kids at home. But they they get them. Not quite as often, but they get them. How do they get them? The answer is you cannot stop God's Respiratory viruses. It's that It's that simple. It's that simple. Aside from the philosophical context that this median age of death provides us, the question is the accuracy. Because when no, no one disagrees that, you know, a lot of elderly nursing homes did die from this and it is dangerous to them. But now that we know that there are so many false positives, so many are asymptomatic, and as many as 90% of those who test positive did not have clinically meaningful loads of the virus. So, wait a minute. You take... Now, now again, this is true of anyone. You have to question if they died of it. But the reason why I'm focusing on the age is because if you're in your 90s, I looked up on the Social Security uh, uh, life expectancy tables. Every year, if you're a man, 93 that year, you have a 22% chance of not living out the year. If you're a female, I think it's 18%. So if you take a a pool of 1,000 people in their 90s, okay, and you understand that at any given moment, a certain number will test positive for the virus, and you know that most of those are not significant viral loads, if not false positives altogether, and you know that roughly a corresponding amount of, of those people will die no matter what. But we know that anyone who tests positive, irrespective of research on the symptoms, on the load, 
on how many CT amplifications it took to get a positive, if they subsequently die, that is recorded as a COVID death. We know that a large percentage of reported deaths of people in their 90s is BS. It's not from COVID. You know, as opposed to people like, let's say they're 60, 65. So generally speaking, it's a much smaller pool of people who will not live out the year. So you could be more certain that a larger number of those that have been tagged as a COVID death is likely a COVID death. It's the real old and the real young where you'll often find that it's just BS. They tested positive and that, and, and they ascribed it to that. And also part of the problem is that they're retroactively going back into death certificates and trying to match them with anyone who tested positive. So again, if we know that up to 90% of positive tests are picking up dead or insignificant viral loads of people who already essentially recovered from the virus, so that means that none of those people, none of those people, 90% of positives, none of those 90% who subsequently died could have died from the virus because it was significantly insignificant, uh, statistically insignificant or chemically in the matter of their body, it's insignificant. But yet we now know that the state health departments are trying to find anyone who died. They're going through every death certificate of anyone who died and try to match it up with the positives. But we know 90% of those positives were BS. So while initially I was saying that I felt 25 to 30% of the, of the death count was inflated, the, uh, the, the recent ones, especially among the elderly, it's a lot higher than that. There we go. Where are the men? We have an, an emasculated society. That's the problem. The only people who actually have any moxie in them are the rioters. When's it our time to riot? You know what? We can't remain silent forever. For now, we have to use our voice. We have to educate people. Go to our Facebook pages, as always, Miniman Speakeasy, Horowitz Citizen Sanctuary. Send me a note at dharwitz at blazemedia.com, my email. Why do you think the men of this generation are so emasculated with their stupid masks? But that's just to scrape the surface of what we're going to cover this week. There's obviously a lot more going on. There's election news, as always. There's immigration news. There's budget news where Congress is going to, Republicans are going to pass a budget without putting any conditions on the states. They're going to pass a stupid state aid package to aid and fuel and legitimize the tyranny rather than defunding it. Again, all here at Blaze Media, CR Podcast. Send this show to a hundred of your friends and relatives. Do me a favor, leave a five-star rating at iTunes. will be a big help. This is the only way we're going to spread the word. The more we spread the word, the more we're going to spread the revolution and get some of the men of this generation more than a amplified trace of testosterone. Till tomorrow, God bless you all, and thank you for listening. Thank you.